Salvador Dali was larger than life. He was an artist, a painter, socialite, pop culture icon, and he was eccentric, to say the least. And he lived an incredibly extravagant lifestyle. And he was known most for his art, but he was also known for his lavish dinner parties that he would throw. Every now and then, he'd gather up all of his friends. He'd get them all together, and they would go out to a restaurant, and Dolly would order the finest of everything that they had. And he would rack up a huge bill, and when it came time to pay, he'd get out his checkbook to pick up the tab, and then they'd leave. But every now and then, the restaurant owner wouldn't cash the check. He didn't cash it. And instead, they chose to eat the cost of the bill. What on earth would make them do something like that? It's because they noticed something. That for whatever reason... Salvador Dali had doodled on the back of the check. He'd drawn a little sketch of whatever came to mind in the moment. Like he was drawing something on the back of a napkin. And so they wouldn't cash the check because that sketch was was an original piece of art by Salvador Dali. And it even included his signature as well. And that drawing meant that that physical check was worth far more than the amount that it was written for. And it was something that time would only make more and more valuable and precious. And that story has always made me wonder something, though. How many checks were cashed over the years because the owners never even noticed? Maybe they were so fixated and excited about that big number, that amount on the check, that they completely missed it, and it slipped right through their hands. But it's always made me wonder as well, how often I have done the exact same thing? How often have I missed what's truly valuable when it's right in front of me? So, how many one-of-a-kind moments with my kids have I missed? Because I was on my phone. How many original, one-of-one, spontaneous expressions have I missed on my daughter's face because my mind was elsewhere? How many sweet memories weren't made because of my distracted mind. I've missed a lot of masterpieces myself. And lately I've found myself in a season where I've been constantly reminded of the steady, unrelenting march of time. It really doesn't slow down, does it? It really does speed up. I've just had a number of those little moments where I've realized how much time 
has passed. My dad asked me this week how long I've owned my truck. I started to say like three or four years. And then I realized I've owned it for eight years. In fact, it's the longest I've ever owned any vehicle. And it still feels like I just got it. And speaking of vehicles, I saw Stacy Pequay's vehicle pull up. I was sitting at my desk and I saw her vehicle pull up and park across or here at the church across the street. And the driver's side door opened. And out came Elliot Fuquay. And I kid you not, there was a, like, a moment of like, what is he doing? <laughs> like, that's unlike him. Did he steal their car? And then it, <laughs> then it hit me. I look over at Matt and I said, when did Elliot get his driver's permit? And we talked about how we just encapsulate kids in our minds like they're seven forever. It's all happening so fast. So Elliot, you're grounded. <laughs> Sorry. Calvin, you too. This isn't funny. You're grounded too because you're sitting next to him. Let's see. Who else? JC, you are too. You're never going back to, co or to college. Anthony Piercy, I see you. I see you. Big trouble, buddy. Cademan, all of you are never moving out of your parents' houses. <laughs> I guess it's open for negotiation. <laughs> and you know, Google doesn't help either. Google Photos sent me one of those collages, you know, that they create from your pictures and then they put it to music. And then they say, do you want to make this into like a printed out collage for $1,500? <laughs> You're like, yes, yes, that's exactly what I need to do. And the particular montage on Tuesday was just pictures of me and Ava from the time that she was born all the way up to the present. And then right after that, as I'm wiping the tears from my eyes, I saw a quote this week that said, 20 years from now, the only people that will remember that you worked late will be your kids. It's like, woof. Easy now. Don't touch my personal standard of righteousness. And then just with the passing of two pastors in our denomination this week, for me it was just a simple reminder that we, friends, we don't have a lot of time. And how much do we really miss along the way? How many times do we miss what's truly valuable when it's right in front of us? Or are we just so busy cashing checks that we miss all those masterpieces? We get fixated on a career, paying those bills, keeping up with the Joneses, those buy it now buttons, next day delivery options, that it all just passes right through our hands and goes completely unnoticed. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But I realize how much I need a steady, constant rhythm of moments that remind me of how fleeting life is. We can get so wrapped up in so many different things. Our values can get so disorganized and we constantly need those moments that wake us up, that put things back into perspective, 
that remove the blinders and remind us of what we heard at the end of our last series. We've only got six minutes left. And in our passage this morning, Jesus teaches us about fasting and money. We don't normally think of those two things as related. And honestly, usually in a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, those are two things that are separated. They put a line right through fasting and treasure. But that's not how Jesus teaches them. Jesus teaches them back to back and he connects them. And the way that he connects them is profound. Because he wants us to wrestle with a very simple question. What is it that you really value? What do you really value? And in this section, Jesus doesn't go into a lot of detail on fasting. Just a couple of verses. And he just instead focuses on how you should fast. And part of it's probably because he was speaking to an audience where fasting was much more commonly practiced than it is today. And so the only time that Israel was required to fast in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year. But all throughout the Old Testament, you see Israel and individuals fast all the time at different spaces, different moments, solemn events. Moses, David, Esther, Ezra, Daniel, Nehemiah, fast. It's all there. And by Jesus' day, the Pharisees fasted twice a week just as part of their regular rhythm of spiritual life. And nowhere does Jesus say not to fast. In fact, his teaching assumes that you do fast. Because he says, and when you fast. He also said, and when you pray. He also said, and when you give. And he uses fasting as this third example in this section. Right after giving and prayer, implying that fasting should be something that's as regularly a part of your spiritual life as giving and prayer. Admittedly, it has not been so in mine. If that's true of you, then you are in good company. Fasting is mysterious because nowhere does the Bible really outline how often one should fast. Yet when we get to Jesus, Jesus assumes and treats it as though it's something that's already just a part of how you view your spiritual life in some measure. And looking at fasting and money together actually helps us see the importance of fasting in a way that just looking at fasting by itself wouldn't show us. It's why Jesus taught them together. He's teaching us something about us. So Jesus says that when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do. Don't disfigure your face so that everyone will know that you're fasting. So don't look downcast. Don't look like you're all in pain. Don't put ashes on your face like you're in mourning. Don't go around all hangry to let everybody know how much you're suffering for God in order to be seen by others. And he says this because that was just common. That's how they did it. When people fasted, they'd make a show of it, and they'd put on a display so that everyone would see it. And again, it's easy to read that and think, well, when I fast, I don't do that. 
or to think, well, if I fast, it's not how I would go about it. So we read that and we say, check. Got it. Let's keep going. But as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> Jesus does not let us off the hook that easily. Because even though Jesus is talking about how you fast, he's addressing the deeper issue of why. What is it that you really value? And Jesus deals with this by connecting fasting and money in a really powerful and unique way. When Jesus says, don't disfigure your face like the hypocrites, that word for disfigure is an unusual word that only shows up a couple times in the New Testament. And it carries the meaning of to make nothing or to make invisible. To make nothing or to make invisible. And all of that doesn't carry over into English very well when you translate it across 2,000 years. And so, what is Jesus saying if we say it quite literally? He says, when you fast, don't make, your, don't make nothing your face. When you fast, don't make invisible your face. So if we just put that together, what's he telling us? Well, remember, when he uses that word hypocrite, he's talking about somebody who's self-deceived. Somebody that thinks they're doing something pleasing to God, but in reality, Jesus' wordplay tells a different story. He's saying, when you fast in a way that wants to be visible to others, you have made yourself invisible to God. You've made yourself nothing before him. He does not see you. Because their fasting is simply an expression of what they truly value, and it's not God, and so God does not value their fasting. They treasure the praise of others. They valued the wrong thing, and they missed the masterpiece. And then Jesus says, instead, when you fast, do this. Wash your face. Put oil on your head. That's the equivalent of him effectively saying, put your going out clothes on. Get dressed up. Prepare yourself as though you are getting ready to meet someone important. Fasting in this way, yeah, it'll make you invisible to others. But it's only then that you will be visible to your heavenly father. So which is it? What is it that you really value? But then right after this, Jesus goes on from here to talk about money and what we treasure. And like I said, this actually helps to see the purpose of fasting in a whole new light because he connects fasting and money by using that same word for disfigure. He says that well-known statement, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. And that word that's translated as destroy is actually the same one that's translated as disfigure in the previous verse. So think about what Jesus is saying. If we just read it literally and woodenly like we did before, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will make nothing. Don't store up treasures on earth that will become invisible. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
or neither moth nor rust can make nothing or make invisible. Is your life devoted to pursuing nothing? He's calling to question what we value and how we see our lives. What are you really after? Is your life really about chasing nothing? Is it about chasing things that you will never truly own because it will all be taken from you by insects and time? Or is your life about storing up treasures that your heavenly father gives you that can never be taken away? What is it that you really value? And on paper, all that sounds so simple, doesn't it? So simple. So you can either have something that will eventually be worthless or you can have something that will be eternally valuable and you can never lose it. Which would you like? Sounds so simple, but we don't live that simply, do we? Because look, there's a part of us that inherently knows the value of earthly treasure and how fleeting it is. We know why obituaries do not list the deceased's net worth. Because who cares? We know that death doesn't have an upper, middle, or lower class. We all leave this world dead broke. We know that only a fool would cling to their bonus check on their deathbed. And yet, that new house would be really nice. <laughs> We'd love to have that new car those new clothes, those accessories to life. It doesn't feel that simple, does it? And why is it that the last two times that I have preached on this passage, my truck was in the shop that week, including this week? This is the last time I am ever preaching on this passage. And as I am swiping my card for $338, it's not that simple. I'm not sitting there with my eyes lifted up to heaven saying, Father, thank you for giving me this opportunity to not glory in earthly things. I don't sprinkle $338 bills on there <laughs> just saying, take these fleeting things. You want more? No, I want all of it. On the one hand, what Jesus says is so simple, but here's the problem. We are not that simple. We are just not that simple. Be honest with yourself. Before today, when was the last time you even thought about storing up heavenly treasure? When was the last time you actively denied yourself and mindfully thought about storing up treasure in heaven? Then compare that to the last time you thought about buying something new or wishing you had something that you don't. Our priorities get out of alignment. Why? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the heart, the heart has its own logic. And that logic does not always make sense. It doesn't always see clearly or prioritize things the way that it should. It's Jeremiah 17 the heart is deceitful above all else. Who could possibly understand it? 
This is why Jesus says what he does next. He teaches us how the heart works and how we can be self-deceived and blind to what's actually within us. And you see what he's doing? He's moved from the outside to the inside. He confronts your idea of treasure, earthly treasure, heavenly treasure, and he uses all of that to zero in on the heart. And as I read what Jesus says next, think about this, that the word for I can be replaced with the word heart. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What's he mean by that? It's actually another section that's hard to translate because these words that he uses don't carry over very well into English. So what's he getting at? He's not talking about what's on the outside. Notice he's talking about the inside. The way that you view the world and treasure is an expression of either the light or darkness within you. The way you view money and treasure and the value that you place on those things is a great measure of your entire spiritual well-being. Or more simply put, he's saying, if you really want to know and have a good idea of how you're doing spiritually, just look at your bank statement. What's there? What's not there? But he's also going deeper than that because of that last phrase. He's talking about how we are self-deceived when he says, if then the light in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness. He's talking about how we can deceive ourselves because we think that the darkness within us, we call it light. And so we can think that we see things clearly. We can think that our priorities are correct and good and in order. We can think that we value the right things when in reality we do not. We're self-deceived because we call the darkness within us light. If we think we value the right things when in reality we value all the wrong things, then how great is that darkness within us? So what does that actually look like? How might someone call the darkness within them light? Well, imagine someone who's starting out their career. Starting out their career and they say, you know, I'm working long hours these days because that's just where I'm at in my career right now. I'm trying to establish myself to provide for my family. You'd hear that and you'd say, of course, that makes sense. That's sometimes that's a reality. Sometimes that's necessary. There's a time and there's a place for that. And we would call that good and right and light. It's being responsible, sacrificing for others. But at the same time, maybe it's not. Maybe all of that is just a cover for the darkness within them. And they're misplaced values. So how would you know which it is? Well, time will tell. Because what if it's a cover? 
What if they're calling darkness light? Because fast forward a few decades to the end of their career. And that same thing was said year after year, time after time, at every stage, after every promotion, at the beginning of every big project. And it was always used to baptize their idolatry of career and personal ambition, their drive for wealth and achievement and getting that next zero on the paycheck. And it ended up producing a life that never really invested in their kids. It was too busy to care about their faith or was never really around to even model it for them. It ended up being a lifetime of work. They never really worked on their marriage and all they had left was a roommate. It produced a life that was never involved in church or knew the joy of community because Sunday was the only day they were willing to take off. And make no mistake, they have an amazing 401k. But how rich do they really sound? They cashed a lot of checks, but they missed all the masterpieces. And yet all along the way, they thought their values were right and good and light. And so how great is that kind of darkness within them? They didn't see that it was never about sacrificing themselves for others. It was always about sacrificing others for themselves. They couldn't see what they really valued. They couldn't see what their heart really treasured. And they were self-deceived about all that darkness within them. They actually valued all the wrong things. And unfortunately for some, only death will put all of that into perspective. And Jesus is saying how dangerous and deceptive money and treasure can be and how our hearts are so quickly and easily deceived by it. Because it reorganizes our values. It shifts it and places it on all the wrong things. And yeah, you cash a lot of checks, but you miss all those masterpiece moments. You miss all the things you get to take with you. Because it causes us to be living for tomorrow. You miss everything today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your heart? And what does it value? Even after all that, Jesus is still not done. He says one more thing. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is also a wisdom teacher, which means that most of the time he talks in a way that gets you to think. And rarely does he speak this directly. And he says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters. And it's such a direct, vivid statement where he places God and money in the exact same category. And why would he do that? It's because he wants you to realize that both God and money want the exact same real estate in your life. They both want to sit on that throne inside your heart. They both want to determine what you value and how you set your priorities and how and why you live. They both want to shape how you see the world and how you see everything and everyone around you. And devotion to one always de 
betrays devotion to the other. Or just to put it in a different, different way from a different angle, the way Jesus is telling us that we can approach money in the exact same way that we should approach God. So we want security. We want security in this unpredictable and dangerous world. Who does not? Because things fall apart, trucks go in the shop, tragedies happen, layoffs are handed down. So, of course, we want that security that we have the resources to face whatever it is that this world could throw our way. And how easy to think that money will provide it. We can look around at our bank account and whether or not it's enough to make us feel safe and comfortable and okay and solid. To make us feel like we won't be destitute. We can look to money to provide us with that security and our hearts say, you are my refuge. You are my high tower. You are my shelter in the storm. We can look to money for satisfaction because who hasn't thought, man, if I just had that. Wouldn't life just be so much better? A new car, new shoes, new house, new kitchen, new vacation. All those things that we attach our hearts to. And this world will constantly remind you of how much that you don't have. Because we are constantly bombarded with toys and accessories, lifestyle brands and products and endless things that we could buy all of which promise you that your life will be one step closer to what you want it to be if you just had this. Money sings to us. It sings to us in our dissatisfaction with life. It sings to us whenever we hunger for something more. And it says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I will lead you beside still waters. I can restore your soul. We can look to money in the same way that we should look to God. We can replace God with money. This is why Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money because your money will try to make the same promises to you as your God. It wants to plop itself down on that throne, in your heart, and pull all your strings to make you lose sight of what's really valuable to where you start calling darkness light. Oh, I need this. I've got to have that. Sometimes that's true, but how often? We are justification machines. We all fall prey to the deception that your money is serving you. But in reality, it's you who are serving your money when you give it your trust. And whatever you and whatever has your trust will have your devotion. And whatever has your devotion will have your heart. And whatever has your heart is your master. So make no mistake, Jesus is not talking about how much you own. Jesus is talking about what owns you. What is it that you really value? Our hearts get misaligned. We value the wrong things. We don't see what's lost. We lose perspective. We lose sight of what really matters. And it's so easy to miss what does. If we take seriously what Jesus is teaching us, then we have to realize 
that the remedy to all of this is more than just leaving here and deciding to spend our money differently and get on a better budget. Jesus is telling us that what we need is a whole new treasure, which means that you need a whole new heart. And like I said at the beginning, we need that constant rhythm of moments that remind us of what really matters. We constantly need something to interrupt our hearts, to just get in the way, to help us see what we value, the things that we give all of our energy and our time and our, mind, our mindset, our focus to. We need something that will constantly interrupt our hearts. And fasting is that interruption. where we lay aside all those appetites. We lay aside our hunger for all sorts of different things and we are willing to recognize that our hearts need to be completely reoriented around what the Father says is right and good and true and valuable and precious. We need our hearts to be realigned with his purposes in our lives. We need to put our going out clothes on all the time and prepare to meet Someone important. You know, I think this is why fasting is so mysterious in the Bible. Because it's not so much about a law that's to be kept. It's an invitation to be received. Because fasting itself doesn't earn us a reward. It realigns our hearts so that we might experience the true reward a life that's devoted to the Father and his purposes so that we might know the joy and the peace and the rest of a rightly ordered heart. The reward is that that makes us like Jesus. Because before Jesus began his ministry, the very first thing he did was fast. 40 days, 40 nights, invisible to the world. And I find that to be so meaningful. He'd just been baptized where the father shouted from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless and he still fasted. He fasted at the beginning of this sacred and solemn moment to fix his gaze upon his father and consecrate his entire being to his will. I do not believe that Jesus just did this to do it. Jesus did this because he needed it. He knew he'd be distracted. He knew he would suffer. He knew that he'd be tempted to turn away and to set his own course and to value all sorts of different things. Do you know how much money you can make when you can raise the dead? He knew that everything would come down to how he answered that simple question. What is it? that you really value. He didn't want to lose perspective, so he fought. He fought by fasting so that he might see the face of his father. And out of that, what happened? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He found a different kind of strength because in that he found a different kind of food. And he was able to endure the hardship and the suffering And to not be shaken by the chaos of this fearful world. Fasting asks you, what is it that you truly value? 
It's an opportunity to introduce into your life moments where we realize we don't value things the way that we should. It's an opportunity to say, I want to value you above all else. I want you to feel like my security. I want you to feel like my satisfaction. And it doesn't. And I'm willing to go hungry until it does. It's a willingness to be interrupted, to encounter the reorienting presence of your heavenly father. And do you not know, he is an artist too. He's larger than life. He's known for throwing a dinner party every week at this table. And he's also known for his artwork. He made a canvas called Creation, and in the center of that masterpiece, he made man. Genesis tells us he made us like a potter working with clay. He's an artist that says that you are a one of a kind, fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are his masterpiece that originated inside of the divine imagination. He longs to meet you. It's in the crucifixion that he withheld what was most precious to him. He did not withhold it from you. And in your baptism, he put his name on you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he signed the work of his hands. For you belong to him and no other. So why would you withhold anything from him? What is it that you really value? Don't let him slip through your hands. Because time keeps marching on. And we do not have a lot of time left. The glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we come to this table this morning, you would order our hearts the way that they should be. Make us uncomfortable. Would you help to loosen our white-knuckle grip on all sorts of different things that that we need to let go of. And instead, orient our hearts towards you this morning. Orient our hearts towards you in a way that gives us new desires and new satisfactions and new peace. That you would rescue us from the chains of our own materialistic desires. And you would allow us to be a people that live for you, for your kingdom, and for the unimaginable reward that waits us all. Meet us at your table this morning and give us grace in these things. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.